Holy Spirit, breath of God and fire of love, we cannot pray, we cannot preach, we cannot reflect, we cannot hear without your aid. Kindle in us the fire of your love and illumine us with your light, that with steadfast wills and holy thoughts we may approach the Father in spirit and in truth through Jesus Christ our Lord, who reigns with you and the Father in eternal union. Amen. You may be seated. Gary asked me on Monday if I could reflect for him, because this would be his third in a row, because he's covered for a few other guys since they've been gone. So I told him, yes, of course, I'll reflect for you, and then realized I've, I didn't do any prep for the preaching, so I barely know what's going on here in these passages. And as I've been trying to prepare and think about it, I, I usually try to pick up on some resonance between the Old Testament and the Gospel, because that's how the lectionary is designed. There's designed to be resonances between the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel passage. And this one I just I could not figure out, but I had no idea what's going on with this Old Testament and this gospel. And then, and I'm, I'm, I'm pulling into Arbor Landing's parking lot to do communion for those folks at Arbor Landing, and I have to reflect there too. I've got to talk a little bit about Gary's sermon and say something a little bit new and original, and it finally clicks to me what's going on, I think, between the Old Testament and the gospel, and that's what I'll just reflect on briefly. I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, drink to my chosen people, says God in Isaiah. And before that, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? And that's, that's the resonance. That God's doing a new thing now with Jesus. And the parable is kind of, it, it hints and foreshadows at it. And Jesus does too. He, he doesn't come out and say it. But the, the, the parable and the passage after it, talking about the scribes and the chief priests getting all offended because he thinks they're telling He's telling this parable against them. That's precisely what he's doing because he's about to do a new thing. He's about to take, in essence, the kingdom from the nation of Israel and give it to the church, in a sense. Give it to the apostles who are all Jewish. Right? So it's not as if Jews are excluded. This morning, two things came up. We're, we're reading um, Benedict XVI on St. Paul, and it was on uh, eschatology, that is the second coming, and on the resurrection, when we finally get to eschatology, Jesus coming back, Brett Kutra, who's not here, so I can say this, please don't tell him. Actually, he'll listen to this because he'll post it online. He says, it took 12 chapters for me to finally read the word judgment. And it was true. I mean, I, it's, uh, I don't think the word judgment or judge has come into the discussion in the book yet, but it finally does when it comes to the second coming. And Gary talked about that on Sunday, how this parable is a judgment parable. And it is. I mean, the, the, the Jews perceive correctly, the scribes and the chief priests, they perceive correctly that Jesus is, quote, telling the parable against them. But it's interesting that what Jesus does is he intentionally holds back the rest of the story. Do you notice that? I mean, in the parable, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. If you're reading this with any kind of background in the Old Testament, you know what's going on here, right? The, the vineyard is a common theme for Israel, and God is the vine dresser, and he's trying to get fruit out of this vine, this vineyard, and they just refuse to do it. And he sends prophet after prophet after prophet to kind of get them back on track, to try to bring them back into his good graces. He's always offering them, come on back, come on back. And they just refuse. And then they said, well, what, what should I do? I'll send my beloved son, a clear reference to Jesus, who is himself the son of the father. So I'll send my son. They'll respect him. And the vine dresser, I mean, if we're thinking theologically, the vine dresser knows what's going to happen. 
because it's been planned from the beginning, that the son is he's not respected, he's rejected. He's put up on a cross and killed. But where this comes in the Gospel of Luke is, is after Jesus has already revealed to his disciples about his death and resurrection. But in the parable, he leaves that out. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And I got to thinking, Jesus, why, why would you leave out the most important part? Right? Why would you leave out the resurrection? Because you know that's what's coming. You've already told your disciples. And with Gary talking so much about how this is a judgment parable, I think part of what I realized is that, yes, this is a judgment parable. When we think judgment, and we're reading in St. Paul about judgment, we're thinking second coming. We're thinking final judgment, where everything is wrapped up and everything is set to right. But I don't think that's what this parable is. This parable is a temporal judgment, not a final one. And the distinction is important. Because temporally speaking, what's happening is God is doing that. He is in some sense shifting from old covenant purposes to new covenant purposes. Taking the kingdom out of the hands of the Jewish people and giving it to the apostles who will start the church. And very early the church will become majority Gentile. And Jack Newton, a beloved old soul at Inklings this morning, turned to me towards the end of it. And he asked, Ryan, uh, did Jesus fail? Because he was supposed to come and save the Jews, right? I mean, that, he was sent to the nation of Israel. He says that a couple times. I'm, I'm sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so Jack asked, did Jesus fail? And I said, well, what do you think? And he said, oh, I, I think you got about 99% of the way there. And I asked him, well, what's the, what's the 1%? What's he missing? He said, the Jews. And I, it clicked as to what we're doing in adult ed. In adult ed, we're going through, we've just finished going through Romans 8. And Romans 8 is soaring in all of its rhetoric about how good and trustworthy the promises of God are, right? It ends with that great, who can separate us from the love of God? Literally nothing. And what Paul transitions to right after that in chapters 9 to 11 is the big kind of, the the elephant in the room with all of that. Well, what about the Jewish people? So uh, if God's... promises in Romans 8 are so trustworthy. If, if there really is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, well, then what about the Jewish people? And he spends three chapters talking about uh, a response to that objection. I, I interpret him as saying basically that two things. There's a remnant chosen by grace that most of the early church believers are all Jewish, and so they're included in the promises of the Messiah. And Jews still to this day, not in vast numbers, but still to this day, come and believe in Jesus. Their whole organization is dedicated to doing that. But Paul says something about the second coming that it really seems like in and around the second coming, the Jewish nation as a people will turn to Jesus as Messiah. And I think that will solve the problem for Jack if he goes home and reads Romans 9 to 11 that Jesus didn't really fail. But notice what gets to happen. It's, it's, it's this one of these long games. God, God is playing the long game. And Paul's reasoning through this in Romans 9 to 11. He's talking about how the partial hardening has come on the Jews for the purpose of opening the door to the Gentiles. That is, that there's in, in some mysterious working of God, all of this rejection that Jesus is experiencing by the Jewish nation is actually working for our benefit. So the Gentiles can be included into the promises of God. And then eventually he'll, he'll take care of them. He won't abandon them. That's coming in the future. But there's something in the providence of God from uh, Jesus' moment in history, the incarnation and onwards, that he's, he's setting it up to play the long game that we get to 
come in on the blessings of salvation and somehow the rejection of Jesus works into that. Well, how? Because his rejection leads to the crucifixion and that's what saves us. And his crucifixion leads to the resurrection and that's what saves us. And the resurrected Christ reigns in heaven now, preaches the gospel of salvation to all people. And here's where it clicked for me. Because this is not a final judgment parable, the message of hope remains for everybody. See, any Jew, any Gentile, anyone can reject God over and over and over again, and the offer still stays good. Right? That is, that we need to find ourselves in not the role of Jesus, but the role of the chief priests here. That when we, at any point, probably more subtly than we want to admit, when we reject Jesus, when we push him aside and don't really listen to him, when we ignore him, when we neglect what he's calling us to do, are there, I mean, is there a limit? Right? Is there enough times, enough strikes you're out? Well, no, I don't think so, because that's why Jesus holds back in the parable. That's why he lets the resurrection, the event, happen to proclaim hope to all people, that the, the death of the son in this parable is not the end of the story. And all of those people, all those chief priests, all those scribes, as they're sitting and watching Jesus kind of tear them a new one sometimes, like get into their way and mess up their plans, it's those people that from the cross he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What that means for us, I think, is that even as Jesus' followers, when we get into those places, those seasons of life, those moments in life where, uh, as, as Gary said in the talk a couple weeks ago, me and Jesus ain't in a great place right now. Right? We're, I'm not very happy with him. He's not very happy with me. It doesn't feel like things are not going great. And what does Jesus do in that? He stands with open arms and says, you can come back anytime. I haven't gone anywhere. In those moments where we reject him, those moments where we, we for a time, for a season, hopefully just say, you know what, I, I got this on my own. I'll be fine, Thanks. Jesus doesn't respond to our rejection with rejection. He responds to our rejection with, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So this is judgment, yes, but it's temporal. It's not eternal. The offer is always good. You can always come back. You can always repent. You can always turn around and go back towards Jesus. And that's, I think, the connection between the Old Testament and the gospel for this afternoon, and that, that's good news. Amen.